Hello and welcome to Iris for Sunday, February 19th, 2023. My name is Trevor and I'll be reading you the Sioux City Journal for today. Today, let's look at the five-day forecast for the Siouxland area and then we'll work our way through the paper as always. So for today, we can expect things to be colder with times of clouds and sun, winds about 8 to 16 miles per hour and a high of 38. Tonight, it'll be a low of 27 degrees with winds from the west-southwest at 6 to 12 miles per hour. On Monday, it'll be milder with some sun. Again, winds about 8 to 16 miles per hour, a high of 47 and a low of 19. Tuesday, a thick cloud cover, high of 38 and a low of 24. Wednesday, uh, snow and ice, breezy and colder, high of 27, low of 30. Boo. Thursday, strong winds subsiding, it'll be colder, high of 18, low of negative 3 degrees. Alright, let's look to the front page about what we have in today's Sunday paper. Let's look to the mini editorial at the bottom first, and then we'll work on their local and regional stories of interest. The Journal Editorial Board writes, congratulations to all the Siouxland wrestlers competing at the state tournament. So they wish them well. All right, let's look to the primary story, which is about school library collections and, I guess, the um, controversies over what should and should not be available in public school libraries. Headline, Librarians Quote Vigilant in Book Selections, from Sioux City. When it comes to knowing which books are age-appropriate for schools, teacher librarians are the experts. School teacher librarians can tell a student which books to read based on their interests in classwork and are at the forefront of deciding which library books are age-appropriate. Quote, we're very vigilant when it comes to choosing books, said Sioux City Middle School librarian Kate Mitchelson. As legislators around the country and in Iowa discuss implementing stricter rules of what books kids are and are not allowed to read, Sioux City school librarians say district standards meet or exceed some of the proposed bill standards. On Monday, the Sioux City School Board conducted a final hearing on a series of library material board policies. The policies discuss what constitutes library materials, how those materials are selected when materials are removed, and what happens when materials are challenged. Mickelson said these policies have been in practice in the district for years, but they felt it was time to put those policies in writing. North High teacher librarian Chris Tomlinson said because the legislators discussing library materials, they felt it was important to have a separate library policy versus an instructional materials policy. After approaching Amy Denny, the director of curriculum, instruction and assessment, the policies were brought to the board. Quote, now we can put them on the website so that everyone can look them up and see what our procedures and processes are, Mickelson said. While some may think librarians just buy books for students at random based on New York Times bestsellers or popularity, Mickelson and Tomlinson said, state that it is a more thought-out process. Mickelson and Tomlinson have their master's degrees in librarianship as well as history and teaching English literature. Quote, we know what we're looking for and we're very cautious in doing them because these are our kids, Mickelson said. Quote, we would never put anything in our libraries that we wouldn't feel comfortable with a student taking home. Mickelson said they are very careful about ensuring the books in each grade school are appropriate for that level. The district subscribes to various professional library journals that come out with recommendations each year. The librarians can then look up books they are interested in purchasing in the online catalog Destiny. The catalog has an option for librarians to read professional reviews 
learn recommended age ranges for the book, and understand which types of readers the book is good for. Quote, those are written by teachers, they're written by librarians, they're written by publishers, so we can really find everything we need from those reviews, Mickelson said. The district selection process requires each book to have a minimum of two quality reviews for the targeted age group. The district uses sources such as the Children's Catalog, Middle and Junior High School Library Catalog, Senior High School Library Catalog, School Library Journal, and more. Even if the books have good reviews, Mickelson said she wants to know exactly what is in the book in case there's something that could trigger students with difficult experiences. When asked if they read many of the books they purchased, both Mickelson and Tomlinson said yes. Well, I don't think I've read adult fiction in 10 years, Tomlinson said. If the librarians don't have time to read the books, there is a network of teachers and staff throughout the district who are willing to read the books and sticky note potential issues. When choosing books at the high school level, Tomlinson balances what topics the teachers are teaching, what students want to read, and what are award winners. She then reviews the books, reviews for the books and then determines which are appropriate. Quote, I have a Venn diagram, she said. She takes those books and looks at the North High Library. Is she short on mystery novels? Question mark. Thrillers? Question mark. If so, she buys more books for those categories. Quote, just slapping together a book order does not happen, she said. It takes a month or two months. They also don't place one single book order. They want new books coming into the library throughout the year, Mickelson said. District policy states library material should, there's a bull, list of bullet points here, First, be chosen for their strengths rather than rejected for their weaknesses. Two, be chosen to enrich and support the curriculum and the educational, emotional, personal, and recreational needs of the users. Three, be evaluated for standards of quality in literary, artistic, and aesthetic quality, technical aspects, and physical format. Four, be appropriate for the range of age, emotional development, ability level, learning styles, and social development of students. Five, represent differing viewpoints of controversial issues so that users may be motivated to engage in critical analysis of such issues, to explore their own beliefs, attitudes, and behavior, and to make intelligent judgments in their everyday lives. And six, provide a global perspective and promote diversity by including materials by authors and illustrators of all cultures. Seven, incorporate current, accurate, and authentic factual content from authoritative sources as appropriate and Nine, provide students with the opportunity to investigate, analyze, and evaluate social issues from multiple perspectives. One of the pillars of librarianship is ensuring everyone has access to educational material, Mickelson said, but sometimes the students need to be protected from reading inappropriate materials for their age. She said some of the middle school kids may think they are ready for higher level books, but they aren't. Mickelson said if a middle school student requests a book that is only available at the high school level, she looks at why. Is it for schoolwork? Is it a higher level book that middle schoolers don't typically read? Or is it inflammatory? If she doesn't know, she'll ask Tomlinson or other high school librarians before requesting the book. Social media sites such as TikTok and Instagram are popular places for adults to share book recommendations, calling the sites BookTok or Bookstagram, respectively. With a high number of kids and teens also using the social media sites, they can end up being recommended extremely inappropriate books. Colleen Hoover is a popular adult romance author who is frequently featured on these sites. Her adult fiction books have sexual scenes and triggering content that wouldn't be considered appropriate for school libraries. She also has a few teen fiction books. Tomlinson and Michelson have students have had students request books such as Hoover's. 
They both said they explained explain that the book is not appropriate for their age and instead recommend an age-appropriate romance novel. Once books are purchased and placed on shelves, they don't always stay there. A topic may have been appropriate a few years ago, may not be now, and librarians are constantly reviewing their catalogs. Quote, we know more than we did the year before, Michelson said. Quote, we always have standards for weeding out any books that are really old. It is more important to have books that are current and relevant than having a large number of books, she said. Mickelson said, for example, they don't want a five-year-old book on the Middle East because the information will be inaccurate. She also said they pull books based on trends or issues. They have pulled older books on people who have since become problematic, such as Bill Crosby. Well, we don't want to have kids getting the wrong information, getting old information, she said. It's really important for us to replace those books, to find new books, to find new stories. At the elementary school and middle school level, Books might move up to middle school and high school if there are any topics that may now be inappropriate or have a scene that is too much for the kids. Every year, Mike Mickelson said she has books that she offers to the high schools and that she is removing from the middle school. The teacher librarians also keep track of how often a book is being checked out and whether or not students are whispering about it. That causes us to stop and say, okay, let's look at this book a little bit more closely. Is there a reason this book is being read so much? Denny said. She said sometimes it's amazing literature that connects with kids and sometimes it has scenes that are not appropriate for that age group. District policy allows librarians to remove items that are outdated, obsolete, racist, sexist, or culturally insensitive. If a parent or guardian of a current student objects to library materials, they can speak with the teacher librarians and explain why they don't want their child reading those books. Tomlinson and Michelson said they have not had any recent contact from parents concerned about the library materials. Mickelson said, for the most part, students don't check out books their parents would not approve of. At the elementary level, Denny said there have been concerns from parents and there have been some books pulled. Quote, we're following our policy, she said. If parents or guardians want books removed from the library completely, the district has a policy to, in place to address those concerns. A committee called the Reconsideration Committee would read the, the material and then meet to discuss the material and the complaint. The committee would be comprised of the Director of Curriculum, Instruction, and Assessment, Director of Elementary or Secondary Education, depending on what level the challenge material is, one district-level instructional director, one building administrator other than the building administrator who received the complaint, one teacher or librarian, one parent or guardian of an enrolled student, and one student. At the open public meeting, the committee will listen to the complaint as well as the opinions of others determine the appropriateness of the material and whether to keep the material, remove the material, or limit its use. Nationally, groups of people and legislators are attempting to get a variety of books banned, both historically challenged books and books that discuss gender and sexuality. Thomason said, at the high school level, there needs to be books that kids can identify with and understand what they're feeling. Whether it's religions, race relations, mindfulness, making friends, domestic violence, or gender, Thomason and Mickelson said the library is a resource for students to seek understanding. For the kids that don't have answers, that don't know what they're doing, that don't know, this might be the only place they get that validation, Thomason said. She said schools don't have to read it. Kids don't have to read it, but for those who are searching for that information, a school library is a safe place where the librarians know what content in the book and that is in the book and that is age appropriate, unlike if the students sought out information on the internet. Governor Kim Reynolds has proposed a bill that if a book is removed by one school due to content, all other schools in the state should restrict it. 
It also states a book removed from one school library would be available for students at other schools with parent permission. Some Republicans in the state suggest there should be age restrictions on books similar to movie ratings. Certain ratings would require parental permission to be checked out under this proposal. All right, let's now return back to the front page of today's paper, where we look to more state and local news, where we have headline about crime enforcement and, uh, I guess, the tension between county and state um, prosecution. Headline, Prosecutors Worry Bill Usurps Local Decisions. Subheadline, It is infringing on our prosecutorial discretion, leader says. From Des Moines, from the Journal of Des Moines Bureau. The Iowa Attorney General's authority to take action in criminal proceedings, regardless of the county attorney's decision, would be enshrined in state law under a provision in Governor Kim Reynolds' sweeping proposal to reorganize state government. While the proposed language restates what it already exists in Iowa law, some county attorneys are concerned it could open the door to the state attorney general being able to overrule their local decisions and actions. Quote, it is infringing on our prosecutorial discretion, says Tina Meth Farrington, the Calhoun County Attorney and President of the Board of Directors of the Iowa County Attorneys Association, describing the process by which county attorneys use their, their professional judgment to preserve limited government resources necessary to achieve just and fair outcomes in individual cases. Quote, we have an ethical duty to do justice for everybody that's involved in the system, said Meth Farrington who has been county attorney since 2013 and has worked in the county attorney's office since 1998. Well, I don't campaign because I don't want this office politicized, and this proposal is kind of throwing politics into the game, and I just don't like that. Meth Farrington, like Reynolds and newly elected Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd, is a Republican. Well, the Iowa Attorney General always has had the legal authority to take action in criminal proceedings in the state's interest, it was the office's practices for decades under the previous attorney general, Tom Miller, to do so only with the county attorney's blessing. While it was not requested by law, required by law, it was Miller's practice to consult with and defer to county attorneys before he deployed the attorney general's office's resources to a criminal proceeding. Because Miller served for so long, he occupied the office for four decades, with the exception of one four-year term in the early 1990s, and with the longest-serving state attorney general in U.S. history, that deference became the office's de facto policy. Byrd, the former Guthrie County attorney, defeated Miller, a Democrat, in last November's election and became Iowa attorney general in January. Reynolds, during her annual condition of the state address in January, announced her intention to broadly reorganize state government. Her office hired a consulting firm to make recommendations, and earlier this month, her proposal was published in the form of a nearly 1,600-page bill. The selection of Reynolds section of Reynolds' bill that deals with the state's justice system, including the Attorney General's office, contains a proposal to add the state to state law the following provision. Quote, the Attorney General may prosecute a criminal proceeding on behalf of the state even if the, a county attorney does not request the Attorney General to act as a county attorney in a proceeding under state law. Meth Farrington said the proposal provision was not requested by Byrd or her office and that Byrd was surprised to see it in the bill. Byrd was not, available, was not made available for an interview last week and a statement from her office did not address the question of whether she had requested the provision. Quote, long-standing state law already authorizes 
the Attorney General's Office to prosecute criminal cases when it is in the state's interest. The bill clarifies that responsibility, Byrd's Press Secretary Alyssa Brilliette said in a statement. Quote, as a former county attorney, Attorney General Byrd respects the primary duty of county attorneys to prosecute criminal cases and looks forward to continuing her close cooperation with them on criminal cases. During a legislative hearing on that section of the bill this month, Reynolds' legislative liaison explained the proposal to lawmakers. Quote, Iowa Code should make clear that the Attorney General's office has jurisdiction to prosecute, even if the county attorney doesn't request, legislative liaison Molly Severin said during the hearing. The Attorney General should ultimately be responsible. Dan Breitbarth, an Assistant Attorney General for Legislative Affairs in Byrd's office and a former Assistant Boone County Attorney, also testified at the legislative hearing and pledged that the office would continue to respect county attorneys' prosecutorial discretion. Quote, we already work closely with the local county attorneys. We have a good working relationship with virtually all the state, of all the county attorneys across the state, and we look forward to that, Breitbarth said. Quote, regarding prosecutorial discretion, the county attorneys obey that, and we, will pl- we plan to obey that as well. County attorneys have expressed unease nonetheless. At the legislative hearing, a lobbyist for the organization that represents all 99 Iowa county attorneys said the group opposes the proposal and raised questions about it. Kelly Myers, who lobbies for the Iowa County Attorneys Association, suggested the proposal could lead to political considerations driving the decision of how or whether to prosecute criminal proceedings. Quote, county attorneys are elected officials who answer to the voters of their counties, their constituents, Myers said. Quote, we do believe it is and should remain an invitation for the Attorney General's office to participate. Meth Farrington described the proposal as a, quote, single problem bill and expressed concern it would create unintended consequences. She said it could lead to cases where if an individual or family is upset with a county attorney's approach to a case, they could go to the Attorney General and attempt to persuade the state office to take over. Quote, my initial reaction to it is when I first saw it, it was that it was overreaching, she said. Meth Farrington said she believes the proposal is intended in part to position the Attorney General's office to prosecute local cases even if a county attorney opts against it. While Meth Farrington did not name her specifically, newly elected Polk County Attorney Kimberly Graham, a Democrat who now represents Iowa's largest county, pledged during her 2022 campaign to not use the office to prosecute low-level drug crimes like marijuana possession and to not request bail for people who are not considered a violent threat. When asked about Reynolds' proposal, Graham declined to comment and deferred to the State County Attorneys Association's comments. Quote, it's really not going to solve any problems, Meth Farrington said. It's really not necessary. I don't understand. But it's there because there's a concern there have been county attorneys who campaigned on spending time and resources on more important things instead of low-level crimes. Lynn County Attorney Nick Maybanks told the Gazette he still is investigating the implications of the proposal. And Johnson County Attorney Rachel Zimmerman Smith declined to comment. Both are Democrats. Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schweizig, who has been managing Reynolds' bill in the Senate, said during the hearings that one reason the proposal is needed is because, in his view, some law enforcement officials are not properly enforcing the law. Quote, not enforcing the law has become a political position, Schultz said. The proposal is trying to make sure somebody is enforcing the law. Senator Michael Buslot, a Republican from Ankney, and another lawmaker on the legislative panel considering the bill 
said there should be multiple avenues for justice to be accomplished and expresses trust in Byrd to use her authority properly. Quote, I have faith in A.G. Byrd to use this responsibly, Bustelot said. Democrats in the legislative panel stated their strong opposition to the proposal, describing it as a political power, political play, and a power grab. Quote, this is not about doing justice. This is about doing politics through criminal justice, said Senator Nate Bolton, a Democrat from Des Moines and a lawyer. Quote, that is something that is going to disrupt a critical working relationship between the county attorneys and the attorney general's office. Reynolds' government reorganization bill, Senate Study Bill 1123, is in the early stages of the legislative process. For it to become law, it must be approved by the Iowa House and Senate before being sent to Reynolds for her signature. Because of its size and scope, the bill is scheduled for a fourth subcommittee hearing. The vast majority of bills received just one subcommittee hearing on Monday. Its next step would be consideration by the Senate's Committee on State Government. All right, let's now turn to page A2 of today's Sunday Journal. Headline, Former Church is Readied for New Mission from Sioux City. When Reverend Stacy Gerhardt stands in what used to be the sanctuary of Calvary Episcopal Church on South Cleveland Street, waves of memories and emotions come crashing back. A priest at Calvary for nearly a decade, Gerhardt remembers moments of small joy, such as successfully hosting a pancake breakfast, and immense pain, like trying to shepherd her flock through a funeral service. She can recall how the initial plans for the 63-year-old building were for it to start at what's now the end of the parking lot. Iowa Bishop Walter C. Reiter consecrated the place in 1976 after the mortgage had been paid off. It, quote, it's important to reflect on. This building holds all these memories, all the major events in life, Gerhardt said. At 5 p.m., Thursday, Gerhardt will make at least one more memory of the former Calvary Episcopal when she leads a deconsecration or secularization service that will mark the official end of the church she pastored, the first time she's overseen such an event. Quote, it's pretty rare to take place, she said. In the secularization process, all of the sacramental items, the altar, the bishop's chair, the pulpit, the lectern, the baptismal font, and the crosses are removed. And then in the Episcopal Church, we have a dedication written by the bishop that's read, Gerhardt said, and there's a service written within our liturgies around secularization of a building. It's actually a very short service. According to the Episcopal Church's website, part of the statement acknowledges, quote, for many, the building has been hallowed by cherished memories. The address is also meant to point out that a church is not a specific building, but rather its people, which is a sentiment found in multiple Bible verses. In a July 2018 press conference, a cardinal with the Catholic Church, Gianfranco Ravasi, said the major reasons churches shudder are lack of congregants, lack of priests, or merging of parishes. When those places close, the relics have to go somewhere too. A December 2021 article from the New York Times spotlighted a warehouse in Staten Island, New York, that actually stores religious items from no longer active churches. With what once was Calvary, its congregation of about 20 to 25 people merged in January 2021 with St. Thomas Episcopal Church on 1200 Douglas Street in Sioux City. As for the building itself, the marvelous thing was, after our final service, some people with Lutheran services in Iowa mentioned that they were looking for a new office space because they were going to be helping resettle Afghan refugees 
and wanted to bring together ministries of early childhood education and adoption, Gerhardt said. LSI's website prominently proclaims it is one of Iowa's largest nonprofit human services agencies. Along with the Sioux City location at what was once Calvary, the organization has offices in Ames, Anamosa, Burlington, Cedar Rapids, Charles City, Clinton, Council Bluffs, Davenport, Denison, Des Moines, Dubuque, Manchester, Maquoketa, Marshalltown, Mason City, Muscatine, Spencer, Storm Lake, Waterloo, Waukean, and Waverly. In addition to the adoption, early childhood, and resettlement programs, LSI offers access to services such as therapy, job training, and language learning. Much of the look and feel of Calvary has been retained since LSI took the keys. There is still a step up to what was the altar area. Visitors can easily spot an organ and piano. A kind of coat rack remains bolted to the walls on the way in. A, in certain downstairs offices have kept the cozy feel of a Sunday school classroom. In fact, if someone searched for, searched for long enough, they could find a button in the former sanctuary that buzzes down to the old classrooms. Touring the place again, Gerhardt was delighted to press the buzzer. Gerhardt said she's also found joy in the fact that her former home was turned over to another religious group. Quote, that was our desire when we knew we would be leaving the building, and we weren't going to settle for anything that probably wasn't some kind of ministry, she said. There were other positives about making the transition, according to Gerhardt. Quote, we certainly enjoyed having a larger congregation and expanding the core of the church, she said. We can do things together that we could not have done prior to this. As our current church community begins the season of Lent, which is in part about reflecting on the fra frailty of all things, Gerhardt can't help but reflect once more what Calvary was and is and what that meant for her and her churchgoers. It reminds me of the temporal nature of human life, and for churches there's a season, and for some and a time to say it's the end, she said. All right, let's now turn to the week in Iowa, and that's a recap of news stories across the state from the past seven days. And this is on page A5 of today's paper. Headline, Mike Pence Rails Against School Gender Policy. Former Vice President Mike Pence touched down in Cedar Rapids on Wednesday, slamming a local school policy intended to protect transgender students that he says erodes parental rights. Pence criticized what he called a, quote, left-wing culture war that has, quote, invaded our schools, colleges, and workplaces. Pence has not officially announced a run for president in 2024, but he has hinted at his intentions to seek the White House and has made several trips to the first-in-the-nation caucus state since 2020. Headline, Reynolds Signs Medical Malpractice Limitations. Iowa will now have caps on non-economic damages from medical malpractice lawsuits of $2 million for a hospital and $1 million for a doctor or clinic. Governor Kim Reynolds signed the bill into law on Thursday, saying it would stabilize health care and ensure access in the state. Opponents of the bill said it takes away the ability for juries to decide proper compensation for medical injury. Headline, Death Penalty Bill Returns. A bill that would bring back the death penalty in Iowa passed its first legislative hurdle last week, but its chances of becoming law are unclear. The bill, which has been introduced in the past, would allow the death penalty as punishment for a person who kidnaps, rapes, and murders a minor. Headline, Blind Iowans Question Reorganization. Blind Iowans said at a hearing last week they were concerned about a proposal to make the director of the Iowa Department of the Blind 
governor-appointed rather than elected by a board. They said the change could weaken services provided by the department. Headline, UI to sell Mayflower. The University of Iowa plans announces plans to sell 55-year-old Mayflower Residence Hall in order to build a new residence hall for returning students. Headline, HPV vaccine changes. Iowa schools would no longer be required to teach about the availability of an HPV vaccine under a proposed proposal lawmakers advanced last week. The common sexually transmitted infection can lead to cervical cancer and other cancers, and public health advocates said the vaccine is key to preventing cancer and saving lives. Headline, COVID cases back up. Iowa's COVID-19 hospitalizations are up for the first time in a month, and cases also rose in the week ending on Wednesday. The state reported 1,626 new cases, up from 1,517 the week before. There were 135 Iowans hospitalized with the virus compared to 122 last week. Headline, Property Tax Fix on Governor's Desk. Iowa's local governments are bracing for a shortfall in their projected budgets as a bill to fix a state oversight in property tax assessments is headed to Governor Kim Reynolds' desk. The bill would let Iowa property owners off the hook for about $130 million they would have otherwise paid. But local governments will lose that much from the budgets they are in the process of planning. Government officials asked lawmakers to make up the difference with reserve funds, but that was not included in the final bill. Headline, Pipeline Proposal Could Limit Projects. A bill backed by the Iowa House Speaker would require CO2 pipeline companies to obtain 90% of their route through voluntary easements before using eminent domain. It would also block projects entirely for a year or more as a federal regulator works on new regulations for CO2 pipelines. Headline, Reynolds' health care bill takes different forms. A wide-ranging health care bill proposed by Governor Kim Reynolds is moving through the Iowa legislature, but the Senate version does not include a provision that would allow pharmacists to dispense birth control without a prescription. Both versions lawmakers are considering would expand funding to crisis pregnancy centers that discourage abortion and give state employees paid parental leave, among other provisions. All right, let's now turn to the opinion section or page 810 of today's Sunday Sioux City Journal. Let's do the editorial, and it looks like we have four letters to the editor, so lots of different Siouxland voices for you to hear. All right, first the editorial from the Sioux City Journal's editorial board. Headline, Iowa schools aren't so bad after all. In case you didn't notice, most students aren't giving any energy to legislators who are trying to control every inch of their lives, afraid they might learn something that would make them more self-sufficient. While we hear about efforts to ban books, what's bad for one library is bad for all, the governor insists, students are excelling at speech and theater competitions, ones that may address LGBTQ issues, extol books that are headed to, quote, ban lists, and feature males playing female roles. While legislators are attempting to make life difficult for transgender students, those students are getting cheers from their peers when they sing in choir or play in the band. When elected officials try to say public schools are failing, those same schools are producing champion, champions in sports, sports young women, and young men and women setting records in football, basketball, volleyball, and now girls wrestling. Similarly, they're winning prizes in STEM competitions, earning scholarships to prestigious schools, and pursuing fields that lawmakers never even heard of. Trouble in River Cities, Iowa? 
question mark. The coronavirus pandemic pointed up shortcomings in crisis learning. In parentheses, did anyone ever consider all homes weren't equipped with Wi-Fi? Question mark. Installed progress, but that shouldn't have been an open hunting call for every aspect of teen life. To suggest that public schools are in disarray is wrong. To claim teachers are inserting political messages in their lessons is naive. Want proof? Go to a game concert or play at one of Iowa's schools and see what the state is producing. Attend the state finals and any number of sports and be prepared to be wowed. Take in a show choir event and you'll see the kind of dedication you, you didn't have when you were in middle or high school. Get into the schools, talk to students and teachers and discover what it is they think about the state's education system. Look at the list of books they're reading and try to follow along. Then urge lawmakers to fix those things on the inside they say they inside are are broken. Grandstanding politicians are like TikTok influencers. They get attention, but often there's no meaning to their dance. All right, now it's letters to the editor. Stunts like a TV show. The letter writer writes. Do you remember the stunt and prank TV show Jackass featuring stunts so outrageous they required warnings and disclaimers? The American appetite for such spectacle has produced decades of reincarnations in the form of sequels, movies, spin-offs, video games, and trading cards. Come now, Iowa Republicans, with an educational version, one which targets rather than shields school children. Here's a lineup of episodes, some of which are nearing completion. House File 9 prohibits school staff from affirming students' gender identity and preferred pronouns and requires the staff to out them to their parents, even though some may have unsafe home environments. House File 8 prohibits school instruction of gender identity and sexual orientation in grades grades K, kindergarten through third grade. Have these GOP leaders considered that some children as young as two to three cents they are not the gender others say they are? Probably not. Their focus is is displaying their conservative bona fides for sustained political office. Stunts over students. A stunt still in the works is legislation pushed by a dark money group, Moms for Liberty, which is pressing Iowa lawmakers to introduce bills which would ban, quote, undesirable books, even though school districts already have selection processes in place. If our most valuable, vulnerable students cannot talk to anyone at school about gender concerns, if they cannot read books whose characters reflect them, if they live in hostile home environments, and if they have, by virtue of lax Iowa gun laws, easy access to firearms, is there any doubt about the final episode of this Jackass series? Signed, Karen Heidman of Sioux City. The next letter is titled, Embrace the Future. The stockyards were a significant era in the history of Sioux City. No one will or can ever deny the role it played in the industrial-like evolution of our city. In fact, the beloved Sioux City Museum, a great attraction, showcases everything that was great about the past and more. I encourage everyone to check out the museum multiple times per year. Now, welcome the year 2023 and welcome change. Sioux City is on track, if done correctly, to majorly welcome new visitors through youth sports, which turn into new businesses and new developments. Responding to a recent article about the future demolition of the last Swift building in the remaining stockyards, one cannot get emotional about the history when you clearly have to do what is best for business now. There is always someone out there previously who didn't embrace change in their generation, but future generations since have relied on change for a better outcome. By demolishing an unsafe and red tagged building, one is not destroying history, one is actually embracing it. I will always be on the side of embracing the future, the evolution of Sioux City. 
Our collective future is brighter than ever if you let it unfold in a positive manner. It's always great to be passionate about what has been accomplished in the past because that has always led to today. The future is a collective group effort today. Make Sioux City great again. Signed, Jake Youngers of Sioux City. Next um, letter to the editor is titled, Why Should One Team Get the Glory? Having just completed an NFL season as a long-term member of the Kansas City Chiefs fan base, we've consumed countless servings of humble pie, cheering in bad times and now in good. However, as it is in pro football, long-term success breeds contempt. Why should one team have all the glory? Let's apply a political spin. Most all NFL teams are a microcosm of our polarizing political climate, racial inequality, taking a knee, etc. The spectacle of the NFL is a prime is prime real estate for exposure to opposing views. Self-anointed coastal elites, i.e. blue states, gravitate towards their respective teams. They feel a sense of entitlement. Ironically, our Midwest flyover red states correspond with the highest level of devoted and conservative fan bases. That said, no team is immune from player indiscretions. After all, these are 20-plus-year-old multi-millionaire elite athletes with social media platforms. Meanwhile, we'll continue to support Big Red Andy, Patrick, and all the great role models on the Kansas City Chiefs team. To those on the coast, know your role and shut your mouth, you jabroni. Signed, Raymond Thomas of Lawton, Iowa. Final letter to the editor is titled, The Financial Potential for CO2. Most current carbon capture information states that CO2 will simply be stored deep underground. However, further information illustrates the financial potential and additional uses for CO2. Obviously, when you spend billions to, quote, capture CO2, you must make a profit somewhere. Curiously, Jake Ketzer, Summit VP of Governmental and Public Affairs, was Governor Reynolds' chief of staff. Jeffrey Boynink, a registered lobbyist for Summit, was the chief of staff and campaign manager for Iowa's previous governor, Terry Branstad, who now works as chief policy advisor for Summit Carbon Solutions. The three-person Iowa Utilities Board, or IUB, was ultimately, will ultimately decide if the proposed carbon pipeline pro- projects can operate in the state. Its members are appointed by the governor. Two of the three-person Iowa Utilities Board members were appointed by the governor, Terry Branstad. One IUB member Richard Lazier was a lawyer for a lobbying group that urged support for Dakota Access. They capture companies store it until technological advances are solidified, then create profitable fuels. Signed, Timothy Getty of Hinton, Iowa. All right, let's now turn to section B or the sports section of today's paper. Headline, Cardinals close in on title. South Sioux City girls take lead in state wrestling finals. The South Sioux City girls wrestling team stood on the verge of their second straight state championship Saturday. Entering the championship matches of the state tournament in Omaha Saturday night, the Cardinals led with 97 points, 14 more than second place Omaha Westside in the single class girls tournament. Results of the final matches were too late for the journal's deadline for Sunday's print edition. The Cardinals won in the inaugural Nebraska State Activities Girls State team title last season. Seven South Sioux girls qualified for this week's state tournament. With three wrestlers advancing to the finals, the Cardinals were on track to add to their team point totals. Yohale Quiones, the defending championship at 155, and Melissa De La Torres, the defending title holder at 235, were set to wrestle for another crown at the CHI Health Center Saturday night. 
South Sioux City's Madeline Bohnet also earned a title shot with a semifinal win by fall over Emily Hole of Scribner Snyder on the semifinals at 105 Friday. Kiones, who pinned Stormy Hampton of Millard South in the semifinals, was set to face Callie Sutton of Lexington in the finals. De La Torre, who won by fall over Abby Danley of Millard South in the semifinals, was set to square off with Brethany Espino of Grand Island in the finals. Another Cardinal defending champion, Jackie Zamora, lost to Claire Pash of West Point Bremer in the 190-pound semifinals. The Cardinals' additional state qualifiers, Gloria Flores, 100, Coral Carrillo Peningua, 110, and Selena Zamora, 135, also racked up points in the consolidation rounds. Two South Sioux City boys wrestlers lost in the Class B semifinals Friday, but remained in contention for top medals. Sophomore Tony Palmer, who placed fourth at 170 last season, dropped his semifinal contest 14-11 to Cade Ziola of Omaha Scott. Julian Reyes, a returning Cardinal medalist at 113, lost his semifinal match 9-4 to Caden Boyle of Bennington. Let's continue with more high school wrestling, where we look to uh, boys wrestling. Headline, Lamars Jr. takes third at state. Subheadline, Hoag records best area finish in Class 3A from Des Moines. Entering the state wrestling tournament this week, Aiden Hoag looked to finish in the top four in his weight class. The Lamars Jr. more than accomplished his goal, winning the third place match at 220 pounds over Denison Schweissig's Jackson Hildebrand with a 3-0 decision Saturday. Hoag lost to Logan Huckfeld of Spencer 4-3 in the quarterfinals at 220 pounds. This season, Huckfeld moved up to 285. The senior finished 6th after dropping fifth, a 5th fifth place consolation match Saturday morning. Looking ahead to his senior year, Hoag said he's contemplating moving up a class himself. One factor weighing in on his decision is the Iowa High School Athletic Association's new weight class system for the 2023-2024 season. Well, I have a goal of moving to the heavyweight, especially with the new weight class moving to 215, he said. Well, we'll just see where I'm at. My goal is to get to 250 this summer. Just eat a lot, get in the weight room. I'll see how big I am next fall. Hoag raised his record to 44-2 Saturday, recorded the top finish for a Class 3A wrestler from Northwest Iowa in this week's tournament. Two area wrestlers, Ty Kodam of Sergeant Bluff Luton at 145 pounds and Ethan DeLeon of Bishop Heland at 170 pounds, earned spots in Class 2A championship matches Saturday night. In the Class 3A finals, three area wrestlers, Kale Morrow of Akron Westfield at 113, Mickey, Mickey Baker of West Sioux at 145, and Jackson DeWald of Westwood at 195, also were seeking their first state titles. Results were too late for the journal's print edition Saturday, Sunday. A total of 22 wrestlers from the journal's circulation era, area earned medals at this week's state tournament <coughs> at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines by placing 8th or higher. Sheldon South O'Brien Jr. Jarrett Roos, who suffered his first loss of the season in the Class 2A semifinals Friday, bounced back to claim 3rd place at 182. Roos pinned Zach Alderman of Dyke New Hartford in 3rd place in the 3rd place match Saturday. Two Sergeant Bluff Luton sophomores joined Ty Kodam on the medal stand Saturday night. Ty's younger brother, Bo, placed 4th for the 2nd straight year after dropping a heartbreaking 4-3 decision to Zach Alderman of Dyke New Hartford in the third place match at Class 2A, 132 pounds. 
Wilde pulled out the victory with a reversal in the final seconds. Ellington won his first state medal after posting a 6-1 decision over Austin Scranton of Anamosa in the 5th place class 2A match at 170 pounds. Quote, it feels amazing, Ellington said. It shows my capabilities and the result of all the hard work I've put in during the season. Entering Saturday night's final matches, Sergeant Bluff Luton stood in 5th place in the team standing with 82.5 points behind 4th place West Delaware's 93.5 points and head of 6th place Webster City's 80 points. Caden Brower of West Monona Whitting placed 4th in Class 1A at 160 pounds. In addition to Ellington, 4 other area wrestlers finished 5th. Jake Mulder of Boyden Hole Rock Valley in Class 2A at 182, Max McGill of Woodbury Central at 160 in Class 1A, and Colby Scott of MVAOCOU in Class 1A at 182, and Ian Blow of Ekron Westfield in Class 1A at 195. Jack Waja of Spirit Lake Park finished 6 in Class 1A at 160, and 3 Class 1A wrestlers Carson Sejunsons of Kingsley Pearson at 132, Noah Strance of Okoboji HMS 160 and Bason of West Lyon won 7th place matches Saturday. Cody DeBoer of Sheldon South O'Brien in Class 2A at 152 and Ethan Satchel of Hinton in Class 1A at 162 both finished 8th place. Alright, let's now turn to page B7 or the business section of today's Sunday paper where we look to a um, new urgent care clinic that opened up in the Dakota Dunes uh, by Mercy One, one of our two primary hospitals here in Sioux City. Headline, Mercy One opens its new urgent care clinic Monday. That's tomorrow. From Dakota Dunes, South Dakota. Mercy One on Monday is opening an urgent care clinic in Dakota Dunes. The 2,175 square foot clinic located in a strip mall at 330 Dakota Dunes Boulevard is staffed by two physicians, two nurses, and six support staff, said Mudasir Ghost, Mercy One Siouxland Executive Director of Rural Hospital and Clinic Operations. The clinic has an x-ray machine on site and testing capabilities for contagious illnesses. Well, we began planning for this location over a year ago, Gauss told the journal, because we saw a need in this community for a full-service urgent care clinic. The Dakota Dunes Urgent Care Clinic is Mercy One's second in the Sioux City metro area. The other one is along Singing Holes Boulevard in Sioux City, near the Walmart. The new urgent care clinic was formerly occupied by Meridian Clinical Research, a firm that conducts clinical trials before Meridian moved to a larger facility on Sunnybrook Drive more than two years ago. It's also adjacent to Mercy One's Dakota Dunes Breast Care Center. Gauss said the space has been completely remodeled, quote, everything's brand new, he said. Urgent care is, as the name implies, intended for patients who need to be seen for a non-life-threatening but still somewhat pressing medical condition where waiting to be seen by appointment would be undesirable, but emergency room care is unwarranted. Quote, some common conditions treated would be ear and eye infection, fever, minor cuts, broken bones or simple fractures, minor skin infections, severe sore throat, sprains and strains, Gauss said. All right, let's now switch to uh, Dear Abby as our time together draws to a close. Headline, Husband Bitter When Wife Succeeds Where He Failed. Dear Abby, A few years ago, my husband, unhappy in his job, decided he wanted to be a real estate agent. He quit his job to do full-time real estate and really struggled. The company he joined offered little training and he had no office skills. 
A dramatic drop in her income almost bankrupted us. He asked me to also get a license to help. I have great office. I have a great office job. I didn't want to at first because I knew I would end up doing almost all the work, but I did it anyways. Shortly after I got licensed, he was offered a position as previous company. It was a blessing and he took it. I've been selling real estate in addition to my job and have and having a lot of success. I believe it's due to my 20 years of office management experience and social media skills. Although I'm an introvert, I'm a hard worker and my business is growing. People seek me out. Abby, my husband is jealous. When I sell a home, he pouts, acts depressed, or picks arguments about around that time. He hates going to business dinners or training with our company, and if I go without him, he barely speaks to me the next day. Sometimes he gets excited and talks about how he needs to sell some houses. When he does, I encourage him and talk about how great he is at working with people, but ultimately, he does nothing to make it happen. I really enjoy real estate. I love getting out and showing houses and networking with other agents, and the extra income has really helped. I don't know what to do. Signed, Peng, the price of success. Abby writes, Dear Peng, your husband may be jealous because you have outdone him in his daydream job, or he may be punishing you out of fear that you are becoming so successful that you might want your independence. Keep going and do not, in all capital letters, allow his behavior to diminish you. None of what you have described is healthy for the future of your marriage. I'm hoping a licensed marriage and family therapist may be able to help you navigate through this rough patch. Please don't put it off. Without counseling, the status quo isn't likely to change. Dear Abby, I have a friend who doesn't drive and constantly asks me to take her places. As a good friend, I do it. When I take her to an event, we agree on a time that we will leave, but she invariably stays behind to chat with other people 30 or 45 minutes past the time that we agreed on. In addition, she never offers anything for fuel. I think she's inconsiderate, and I'm thinking about telling her she will need to find her own rides. Am I wrong for this? Signed, over it in New Jersey. And Abby writes, No, you are not wrong, but the next time it happens, try this. Tell your good friend you will be leaving the event at a specific time, and if she wants to stick around and chat, she should find another ride home. That way, you won't be inconvenienced. Alright, let's read the horoscopes for today. Today's birthday for, I guess, tomorrow, for February 20th, 2023. This year offers bounty and abundance. Realize dreams by acting on carefully laid plans. Epiphanies illuminate the spring for a shift in summer research or travels. Windfall fruits fill family blankets this autumn before winter creative plans shift direction. Conserve energy, enjoy, and share the goodness. To get the advantage, check the day's rating. 10 is the easiest day, 0 is the most challenging. Aries. Today is a nine. Your luck in love improves immensely with Venus in your sign. Nurture matters of the heart. Beautify your surroundings and your personal style. Taurus. Today is a seven. Discover hidden beauty from the past. Fantasies abound over a month with Venus in Aries. Finish the old jobs. Savor peaceful rituals and private organization. Gemini. Today is a seven. You're especially popular. Get out in public over the next month with Venus in Aries. Social activities benefit your career. Group collaborations thrive. Cancer, today is a nine. Assume authority this month with Venus and Aries. It's easier to take advance to advance your agenda. Take on greater leadership. Career advancement is distinctly possible. Leo, today is an eighth. Explore and discover new beauty this month with Venus and Aries. Make travel plans and venture forth. Investigate a matter of personal passion. Virgo, today is a nine. Growing assets, income, and wealth is possible this month with Venus and Aries. Divert funds to savings. Budget expenses carefully. Invest in beauty. Libra. Today is an eight. Collaboration and partnership flower over the next month with Venus and Aries. 
Listen to your intuition. Things could get deliciously spicy. Pull together. Scorpio. Today is a nine. Find your rhythm and get moving this month with Venus and Aries. Your work and health grow stronger with steady practice. You're energized. Sagittarius. Today is a nine. Savor save, save a magnetic mutual attraction. You're especially lucky in love this month with Venus and Aries. Artistic efforts work in your favor. Capricorn. Today is a seven. Beautify your spaces over the next month with Venus and Aries. Make improvements. Share domestic bliss with family. Enjoy the comfort of home. Aquarius. Today is a nine. Create works of beauty over the next month with Venus and Aries. Write, publish, and broadcast your messages with love. Express from your heart. Pisces. Today is an eight. Pamper yourself with small luxuries. This month can be lucrative of Venus and Aries. Put love into your work. All right, let's now return um, to the weather recap, and then we'll say goodbye for today. For the five-day forecast, again, today it is colder with times of clouds and sun, high of 38, but it looks like we do have that bright sunshine out. Tonight, it'll be mostly cloudy, low of 25, so all that melting water will freeze once again, unfortunately. Monday, milder with some sun, high of 47, low of 19. Tuesday, a thick cloud cover, high of 38, low of 24. Wednesday, snow and ice, breezy and colder, high of 27, low of 13. And Thursday, strong wind subsiding, colder, high of 18, and a low of 3 degrees, negative 3 degrees, excuse me. Well, that has been the end of our broadcast for Iris for the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, February 19th, 2023. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Take care of yourselves and, if you can, someone else. Bye-bye.